Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. Whatever you feel like is your challenge, you have to figure out a way to get through it because you don't want to stop in hell. You want to be able to achieve and go farther. Mesdames et messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello and welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever, the podcast for Olympics fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I'm wearing my hammer pants and I'm ready for hammer time. <laughs> wow. I, I just, I have nothing for that. That's pretty good. <laughs> that is a joke that is too legit. Too legit to quit. That's right. We are talking hammer throw today, which is exciting because we have been wanting to talk to people who throw things. And today we had the lovely Deanna Price on at our show, and uh, she's so great to talk to. Contributor Ben and I talked with her last week, and so good. It's one of those we have to break it up into two parts because it was an insanely long interview. So uh, this is going to be a really exciting couple of shows for us. But before we get into it, we would like to say thank you to everyone who supports the show by shopping through Amazon. And if you shop through the link on our website, olimfever.com, we get a little commission from your purchases that helps us pay for all of the tools we need to keep the show going. You can click on the Amazon banner on our website, olimfever.com. And what would if those tools be a hammer? Well, you know, if I had a hammer... <laughs> I could throw it in the morning, I could throw it in the evening, and I could throw it all over this land. And when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> we could do this all day. I know, we could, we could. So let's just get to our interview. Today we're talking with Deanna Price, who is a hammer thrower from the United States. She recently became the first American woman to win a medal in hammer throw at the uh, IAAF World Champs, or now I guess it would be the World Athletics World Championships, where she took gold. And she also competed in the Rio Olympics, where she placed eighth. This week, Deanna tells me and contributor Ben how her sport works. Take a listen. Can I ask the first question about, yeah. about hammer throw in particular? Because we were watching some of the videos, and it looks like 
So let me preface this by saying we talked to a hurdler who explained to us what, what goes into a hurdle race. And we looked at each other afterwards and we said, I had no idea there was that much going on. And so when we were watching the videos of you throw, I tried to pay attention to all of the things that seem to be happening in each throw. And it looks to me, I'm guessing that there's at least three stages to every throw. But can you talk about what goes into each throw that you do? The throw that itself. So for me personally, you know, the hammer is an 8.8 pound ball. So four kilos on a three foot 11 inch wire. And some athletes do three turns, some athletes do four turns. But whenever you walk into the ring, you know, for me personally, like you said, my first thing I do is I look at the exact key points that I need to focus on that day on my arms. So I always have a small practice the day before and figure out exactly what I need to work on at that exact moment. So when I go into that ring, I look at my arm, so and I kind of just read those out loud to me. Because a lot of times, it's so intense, it's so exciting that you sometimes forget, you know, what exactly you're supposed to be doing. <laughs> you know, you, you just kind of blow through the motions versus and be like, okay, let me get the ball back, and let me push it from right to left and keep your head centered, you know, like certain things like that, or, um, you know, get that foot down fast on three, you know? So I remind myself right before I enter the ring. So then it gives myself a chance to really hone in and focus on what I need to do. So for me, when I have the ball, I always walk in with the ball in my right hand. And then, um, when I get into the ring, I place the ball to my left and then I do a four step walk up. And I end up going left foot on middle and then right foot partially back. And then I do two winds. And then I end up on my third wind, I pivot my right foot up to the top of the ring. And then from there, I push it in. And then you're working on uh, your down phases and really trying to work the ball going straight back versus going side to side. A lot of People try to go side to side, but you lose that energy. So you're trying to take the ball going from straight back to back and pushing it through. And then um, I do four consecutive turns and then a release point to that left side while all staying in a seven diameter ring. What does the wind up help you do and what does the spinning help you do? Yeah, so um, why we wind the ball is to get energy already starting to flow, getting more pressure onto that ball and having connected, uh, being connected to the hammer. So whenever you're winding it, you want, you don't want to go too fast because then, you know, if there's kind of out of control, you're trying to set yourself up for a nice orbit. So you're winding, you're getting kind of loose, but keeping that tension on that ball and getting that ball speed. And then once you throw that ball in from the entry and each turn, you know, you kind of want to build each turn faster and faster because whenever you get to that release, it's kind of like a, you know, a top, you know, you just want to be spinning, spinning, and boom, hit it. And, um, you know, it, it's just like you're causing, getting that force and that ball momentum with each turn. And then it's just like a big pop that you finish. It's basically like a car and you're going faster and faster, faster, and then you hit a wall. That's the release. And how hard is it to sort of aim between that? It looks like a fairly narrow opening for somebody who's spinning around to chuck that ball through the <laughs> net there. It is. It is very hard, actually. Um, so the United States, 
So like during USA is they close the gate, but it's not really as close as like internationally. So internationally it always seems a lot smaller opening. <laughs> so, um, you know, it is, it is difficult. Um, my last two months of training had been with a, um, even smaller hole than an international hole. Cause my husband told me, he's like, if you can get through this hole consistently, he's like going into Doha or any international meet, you won't have a problem. And he was right because uh, it it really does because you're surrounded by netting, and you know, and when you see those gates closed in on you, it, it kind of feels a little um, claustrophobic, and you feel you know you feel that pressure, you feel that anxiety of man, if I shank this or if I don't hit that correct release point, I'm gonna hit this net, or you know, even some people if you release it too early, it'll drag on the net on the right side you know, it, while going out, you know, it, it, it is such a timing mechanism that you have to make sure every turn, every step is perfect. Cause if not, you're going to hit one of those things and it takes down your distance. How many times did you have to go into the net before you started going out of the net when you started this? <laughs> so, uh, every, I mean, Oh man, it, it, it takes a while. And, uh, whenever you're starting in hammer throwing, it's going to take time. It takes time to reps. Everything that you do, you have to get used to. So what we first do is we open up the gate as wide as we can. So to get that confidence in being able to throw, and then we slowly start tapering the uh, cage in to kind of, you know, just slowly building yourself that confidence with each, with each week to each month. And then when we hit to like nationals or, you know, internationally, we're conditioned to be able to go through that zone. If you hit the net and the hammer still goes out into the field, does that still count? Yes. Uh, if you look back into my, I think it was my 2018 season, <laughs> I had a 78-12 mark. And I think what, like, I, I I remember if it was that season season prior but I had a great throw and then my next throw was seven meters because oh I smoked God. the cage and it landed in sector and then I stepped out the back of the ring <laughs> so I went from throwing like 78 I think it was to seven wow and then you said sector so is that like the field of play you've got to get it into you've got to throw it so yeah, far yeah, for it yeah. to count okay Yes. So uh, with the sector lines, they, uh, they draw them out. So you have to land. So you're trying to avoid the cage while also landing within the two lines. So, you know, it comes out in kind of like a triangle, you know, and you have to be able to throw between those two lines. If you hit the line, it's a foul. If you land outside the bounce, it's a foul. If you touch the top of the ring, it's a foul. If you exit out the back half of the ring towards the field, it's a foul. And does a foul mean it doesn't count? Yeah, it's just a big X. In the United States, you get three throws for qualifying, and then three throws if you qualify through to finals. Now, what's different is internationally. So, like, big meets like World Championships and Olympics, they have, I guess, like, qualifying. So, you know, you have... 30 girls to 40 girls competing and you have to hit that standard to get through to qualify or be top 12 
And then next day or the day after, you'll be competing against that top 12. And then that's when you get your three qualifying to make the finals. So, so it's pretty, it's, it's very, it's very hard, (laughs) especially uh, since we don't have many meets that are like that. So you kind of have to mentally prepare yourself for qualifying. So like at Doha, you know, um, they have the 30 to 40 girls who are all competing and qualifying standard was just to automatically make it into the meet was, um, which I think it was 72.50. And, you know, my first throw, so you get three throws to try to hit qualifying or be top 12. And I ended up throwing 73, I think 73.80 something. And so I qualified through on my first round throw. And so I didn't have to take the next two because those throws don't count towards the, like, don't count. Okay. So I don't get to take those numbers to the actual meet. So that's like the qualifying rounds. Uh, So there's a group A and a group B split down between, you know, between the athletes who have made it to Worlds and Olympics. And then the top 12 from those 40 go on to the actual meet. Holy cow. Yeah. I mean... (laughs) That would be really hard to get to the Olympics and not like you don't even get into the actual meet or even, you know, Doha too. Yeah, It it is a meet, but it's not like the, like the actual competition. So like you're competing to make it into the qualifying. So it's like the first round qualifying, then there's a second round qualifying and then there's the finals. Okay. Okay. So like the, so the A and B group are in the first round and then, the, the only 12 make it to the second round and then it's top eight goes to finals. When you're in a group that's like 15 to 20 people, how hard is it to keep warm in between throws? Extremely hard. So I actually came uh, into that issue this year. So I qualified through nice and easy, got it done, not a problem first throw. But in the, because you're waiting There's 15, I had 15 girls in group B and I was waiting 30 minutes between each throw. So luckily my first round throw, not a problem, done. So next day was finals. So ended up getting in there. So now you're competing against the 12 that made it through. And so that was taking about 25 minutes. And so we're waiting. um, And I was one of the first girls to throw. So I threw, got it done. I I knew like we've been practicing on trying to time my throws every 20, 20 minutes, try to time it out because you got to account for fouls and that kind of stuff. So we timed it out about every 20 minutes that I would throw. Well, then next thing we know, I was the leader. So I was, so on the third round throw after to make it into the actual finals, the top eight, they reorder it the best to the worst. And then they start from the worst athlete and they go to the best. And so I was at the very beginning, it's so hard to kind of explain. I was like, <laughs> <drops> out. <laughs> so I'm going at, I was number two thrower and that's throwing the farthest. So I had to wait that 15 minutes and then I had to wait another 15 minutes to have my fourth round throw. Oh, so man. I, so with waiting that much time, I ended up, you know, it was my fourth round throw. I threw and I was like, oh, that's actually like, that felt pretty good. But it only went to 74 meters. I was like, 
uh-oh. <laughs> I was like, okay. And I'm like looking at my husband. I'm like, oh, I need to go do some jogging and running. Because, <laughs> so, you know, it just, you know, I've never been in that situation before. So it was definitely a learning experience. Wow. When you release the hammer, do you know how good it is? I mean, you just mentioned it. you had a, what felt good and it wasn't quite as good, but how do you know when a throw is good? So it is, um, for me personally, it's the connection. I can tell if it's going to be a good throw or not off entry. So if I can connect off one and get that foot down, I know that it's going to be a bomb or it's going to be a really good throw. That's for me personally. But there's a lot of times that, you know, maybe on four, I might mess up, but usually if I can connect on one, and I could feel that connection and that ball coming in from that third wind. I know as long as I stay down and into that throw, it's going to be a good throw. It'll be over 75 meters. It's just one of those things where you just feel that pull and it's just it, that ball's in the right place at the right time. And then you're getting that foot down at that exact moment that you need to and driving into that next turn. And it's one of those moments that you just, you're so you could feel it and you start getting excited but you can't let that excitement get to you because a lot of times then you're going to try and rush it and fight the orbit so you have to sit into that turn and just wait for it to come that ball to work through that orbit and then connect on that next turn and then being able to drive it up to that left side on that release man I'm my I know I'm I'm looking at Ben and we're both kind of just processing how that all works and fits together. <laughs> I mean, and how long did it take you to like figure that out or develop your process? Oh, I'm still like it is a never ending like, you know, some athletes have like certain timings that they like runners, sprinters that they kind of know their rhythm. With hammer throwing, uh and probably like it, it might be the same for other athletes, but it's always changing. It is always like your technique is always changing. It's always evolving. And it's, it's one of those things, you know, cause like the stronger you get, the faster the ball is going to move. Well, the faster the ball moves, it's going to throw your technique off of it. So then you have to adjust and you have to like tinker and trying to make every single thing line up together because you want to be able to create all that energy and force from your lifting and putting it into the ball and being able to work that ball through and making sure your technique is being able to amplify it and keep building and building and being able to have that release and smacking it I mean this year it's been interesting because you know like I said um, you know I, I got hurt in May so I wasn't able to really stay as te technically sound this year. If I had the technical aspects of 2018, but the strength that I had this year, I, you know, I, I, you, I can't even tell you what it, how far it could have gone. When you were down then, did you like do mental training to, and kind of like f mentally go through throws so it felt like you were practicing? Usually... So whenever I was hurt, I ended up taking, you know, like two weeks off. But, you know, I was throwing about 40 to 50 feet less, 
you know, I was, I was having trouble even getting over 70 meters. It was, it was, it was struggle. There was days I was throwing 63, 65 meters with my 4k. And I've never been like that ever. And so I still threw I took two weeks off. And during those two weeks when I rested, I didn't, I tried not to think about it because then you start kind of gearing up in your brain and you start thinking, you know, what am I doing? How Sometimes you just need to rest it, put it in the bank, lock it up. Don't think about it. You'll come back and we'll start again. But it's just, it's not worth it. I was like, cause you're going to become so obsessed that you're not going to be able to sleep. You're not going to be able to eat. You know, there, there's points that in your training, this happens, but I'm so fortunate that I grew up with a family uh, and my mom and dad who taught me how to deal with that kind of stuff, you know, being able to basically take the day for what it is, you know, and mom and dad always said, you know, bad things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people, but it's how you look at it. It's how you overcome those obstacles. And that's what makes you stronger. Whatever you feel like is your challenge, you have to figure out a way to get through it because you don't want to stop in hell. You want to be able to achieve and go farther and get past and get out of hell and get to where you need to be going and feeling in a more comfortable situation. So, you know, every day you know, I would hear those thoughts when I'd be at practice of, you know, why am I doing this? You know, and who am I doing this for? And what's the purpose? And those are the three questions that I had to ask myself every single day because, uh, you know, and, and there's days that it was really hard to answer those questions. It was, it was. There was days that I would struggle, and I'd sit there and I'd think, okay, you know, uh, and it'd be hard to find an answer. And uh, luckily, you know, I every day I did. And it might have took me a little while, and it might took me at the end of the day to sit down and figure it out, or, you know, it could have been right early in the morning. But it's one of those things that I have to answer every day, because if I don't, that's when it's time for me to retire from track and field. And... Uh- you, you, I've uh, seen interviews where you've talked about the three questions and, and famously there you write them on your arm along with things to, to do. But when did you start doing that, writing this all out on your arm so you could see it? I started writing on my arm in the end of last year is when it kind of started. It was just one of those, like the, the three points to remember during throwing. But the who, why, and purpose didn't start until this year. Because it, cause, um, I've had injuries, you know, I've, like any athlete, have had their trials and tribulations. I've, you know, torn my abdomen. I've torn my knee. I have three bulging discs in my back, you know, uh, broke my arm. I, I've, I've had every single injury you can think of. And, you know. <laughs> and Wait, is that all from throwing you did all of those things? Most of it was actually from shot put, except okay. that arm. I broke my arm because of a hammer. That was my fault, though, because I didn't let go of the ball. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, I was turning, and it started to – so there's a thing called, um, like, the ball's pulling, so you're countering it. So I didn't counter it correctly, and I let it – and it was pulling me out, and, and I, instead of – it started lifting me off the ground, and instead of letting it go – I tried to fight it and bring it back. Well, by that time, it lifted me off the ground. And then when the ball came back around, it slammed me back down. 
if you look on YouTube, you will see plenty of videos of other people doing it too. And I ended up breaking my arm my freshman year. So you put so much energy into an eight, nine pound ball, four kilo ball, I guess, right? That it was able to pick you up and, and drop you on the ground again. Well, I think at that time that was a, uh, so we do different weight variations during practice. So it was a little bit of a heavier ball. Because if you can throw a little bit of a heavier ball and make that go, then that lighter ball is going to feel a lot easier. <laughs> so sure, it was sure. a little bit heavier, uh, but it picked me up and it slammed me back down. <laughs> wow. Uh, you know, I, oh, yeah. It, so I had like a nice brace and then I tore my knee because uh, I was throwing shot put and I got locked up on the toe, toe board. So my knee went. So basically my foot got locked up against the toe board. And whenever I was trying to release the ball and pushing it over the toe board, um, I put too much, you know, I just tore up my knee, ACL, uh, PCL, and uh, MCL. Wait, if we're on injury talk, how did you tear your abdomen? So (laughs) so it's really crazy. I was benching. And when I was benching, you know, my feet were down. And I was trying to get the weight up, and some for some reason, I guess when I was just because I use my core when I'm benching to you know help with my um, upper body, and I end up tearing my abdomen on my right side. Holy cow! Ouch! Yeah, yeah right. So, so the, this like, <laughs> and every athlete has their crazy stories. I'm accident prone. So <laughs> this is not normal. <laughs> I hope it's not. <laughs> but, you know, like my mom always said, she's like, the one thing about injuries is that, you know, it was funny because I was only throwing 65 meters, 60, 65 my sophomore year, and then I tore my knee in my junior year. And then I ended up uh, coming back stronger and went 72-30. So what were you studying because it, it sounds I, to me like you should be a physics major. <laughs> <laughs> I actually double degreed in accounting and management with a minor in business law. Okay. Yeah, so uh, at, at uh, SIUC uh, in Illinois. And great, great program. But I've kind of come to the realization that I don't think I'm quite suited for being an accountant. <laughs> but... Uh, <laughs> So I'm kind of leaning towards more management positions and possibly since my husband is a throws coach, I would love it over time for him to be a head coach and then maybe the throws coach. Oh, that'll, that'll be nice. Oh yeah. So- like we spend every single day with each other and I couldn't imagine it a day without him. One of the things I was wondering was how do you improve and particularly in looking at your throws in Rio that were almost 71 meters to your throw in Doha, which is seven plus meters longer than that. How, what did you do and what did you change in your training that led to that improvement? So I, I was under coach John Smith from 2011 till 2015. And then I went under coach James Lambert from 20. 16 to now and 
with Coach John, it was, it was get stronger, get stronger, get stronger, which was great because it got me strong real fast and it got me to that 70 meters mark. Now with being with JC, he's an extreme technician and he's very precise and he, he likes things a certain way. And he's really good at converting that strength to, uh, so like coach John had that ability as well. Don't get me wrong. Like, but JC was the coach for me. He, he was the one who was, he, he could put it in a way that I could understand and to, you know, and he was, he was really great about it. And, you know, at the time, my junior year, I was weighing 275 pounds and, um, he got me down to, uh, he was like, Hey, you know, you're strong, you know, you have a great work ethic. He's like, but now it's time to implement speed back into your throwing. And he's like, you need to lose weight. And he got me down to 230 pounds within a year. And what he did was he made sure that I kept my strength, but lost the fat, which then made me faster. So then that ball's even moving faster than I could have ever imagined. And so when you say faster there, are you talking about the time it takes you to complete a throw or like the, t- the, the, the rotational speed of the spin or, or what's the ball speed. Okay. So, so you are basically like, you're like the anchor, you know, you're just holding on, but you want the ball to be moving faster than what you are. You're just there to catch it at the right time. If you can't move the ball, then it's not going to go anywhere. You have to be able to catch it right and push it at that right moment. And that's all into ball speed. So getting that ball to pick up the speed and force and being able to release at that right moment. And and it, it's it's crazy because, you know, I would look at it before because I would, I would try and make my body go faster by, you know, like pulling my head or, you know, really trying to rip my upper body, get it thrown across really hard. And it's, you know, it's taking me time that now it's, okay, build into the throw, you know, one, two, three, four, and then being explosive and being able to transition my power into the ball and being able to let it stretch at a little bit further every single rotation. With losing the weight and becoming faster, is that both faster in terms of your feet being able to move or your and your arms being able to move faster or being able to turn a little bit quicker, being a little bit more, um, you know, uh, narrow in my steps, not being okay. as wide, being able to just counter the ball better. It was just, you know, um, strengthening the core. I think I lost seven inches around my waist, just, you know, abs, cardio, you know, working on uh, ladders, drills all that kind of stuff. And, uh, like every day, you know, I did 200 turns and, uh, just turn, 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 turn and get it right. And if you don't do it right, do it again. So in doing 200 turns, are you really good at that game where they make you stick your head to a baseball bat and spin around and then run? I haven't tried it. I would think that we would be really good. I feel like if Hammer Throws did it, they'd be like, this is not an issue. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So I, I think uh, I, I think we would be pretty good at it. <laughs> and so looking, we talked a little bit about some of the exercises that you've done, but then what is your, what does a training cycle look like for you? Is it because you talked about, you know, being stronger and then you talked about sort of being a technician, how do you put all of that together as you're getting ready for a competition or, or getting ready for a season even? It's just peeking yourself out by peeking out. You know, it's, I, I don't exactly, uh, I try to be as ignorant as possible when it comes to my training cycles, because the more I know, the more I would try and question it. So that would be my husband, like my husband and coach, JC Lambert. He is the person who writes up every single thing. He has different ball sets, um, different weightlifting schedules, and uh, he times everything out. So I'm able to peak at that right moment and be able to be to throw the farthest when it counts. So then you've done really well in this sport and I'm wondering at what point did you did you sort of know like okay I've got something here I'm I'm gonna take this to the highest levels. Oh man, that would probably be in 2015 was probably the realization that I could do something. Uh, that was the first big team that I made was World Championships in Beijing, China, and you know I my farthest mark at that time was 7230. And, uh, you know, I, I placed second at USA's against Amber Campbell. And uh, I was like, wow, okay, this is crazy. And But it wasn't till 2016 when I realized that I could do, that I could be something bigger than, uh, you know, bigger than myself, that I could be a part of something. And it, because being, me and Amber being the first ever females to um, place, as high as we did and Rio was unheard of, you know, having two USA women and the women's hammer final at the Olympics, you know, it, it was just, to me, that was kind of a realization of, wow, okay, I can actually do this. Cause you know, there's one thing of making teams that it's, it's, you know, bringing home that medal for our country. That is, that has been my number one goal and priority has always been able to bring home the medal for my country and my community and my family and anybody who has impacted me in a positive way because I wouldn't be who I am without them. There's no way I could have been on this track of life and came across hammer throwing and, and, and started a throw and then having all these wonderful people, you know, influence me in such an amazing way that that's the only thing that I've ever wanted was to be able to say thank you. And the best way to do that is to bring home medals for my family and my country. So you're saying this is not an individual sport? No. A lot of people try to think it is, but uh, there's always a team behind the individual. So, <laughs> you know, uh, I've talked to a lot of athletes and it, it gets, when it's just you and you finally get to the top, who are you going to celebrate it with? It, it's kind of lonely. I, I, I would think, you know, it'd it feel, you know, it, it, what's the meaning behind this? 
yeah, it's, it's your hard work, but it's just a moment in your life and it's going to pass. And it, but it's the relationships that you build while doing and achieving these moments that make you who you are and build you who you are as a person. And that's, that's what I love about the sport is that I'm going to have relationships for the rest of my life that I could have never achieved without doing track and field, you know, and every time I, you know, I, I say this and I try to say it every time, you know, it's not me, it's we, you know, I could have never been, it's, it always makes me start tearing up because, <laughs> uh, you know, that so many people are so wonderful and so great that they put in their time and they put in their effort. And when you surround yourself with positive people, anything is possible. And then when you look in the past, are you going to have any regrets? Are you going to have anything that you wish that you would have done or you would have been with or who you would have done, uh, you know, done it with or being able to just live life and be happy? Yeah, it's it's interesting because it's to hear you say that and, and that that notion that there are a lot of people who go into building these athletes and building these teams. And I'm, I'm curious, too. How did you, you mentioned, you know, that you've made a lot of these relationships through finding track and field. How did you find it? How did you get there in the first place? So how I got into track and field, you know, it was uh, my brother's, I was just going to run the 800, actually. I was going to run the 800. My mom held a uh, record at Troy Buchanan and her record got broken. I think it was like five years before I came into school. And so I was like, I'm going to go and I'm going to break my mother's record. I'm going to do this. And, you know, I, I went to tryouts and it was my brother's friend, Erin Cooper. Uh, and she was a small, skinny thing. And she was like, you're going to come with me. We're going to be throwers. And I was like, what? She's like, my dad, he, he's a, he's a throws coach, um, volunteer, you know, you'll love it. Just, just come with me and and just try it. You're, you're going to be great. And I'm like, well, this is, I've never done anything like this in my life. Sure. And so, you know, uh, first I went through the discus, it went like 68 feet and, uh, they were like, wow, okay. And, uh, you know, it was just one of those things. I remember coming home to my mom and dad and I was like, Hey, I'm going to, you know, take it easy and kind of, you know, like I, I, I'm just going to have fun because I did softball, basketball, volleyball, and I just did track and field to stay in shape. And I was like, I'm just, this is just going to be my fun sport. Well, <laughs> I ended up making it to state my freshman year. So. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> my, my competitiveness came out. <laughs> but, you know, uh, her coat. And, and then it was her dad who he just had he, – he's a crazy guy. Absolutely love him, but he's crazy. And, uh, you know, who has a hammer cave? Well, it was just at the time a hammer pad, just a pad of concrete in their front yard. Like you do. Like you do. Yeah, well, like, <laughs> but, you know, it was, and, crazy. And, and, it was just like he had me come over to his house and he's like, here, try this. And I was like, uh, I was like, well, we don't have this in high school. Why am I throwing this? Like, why, why, why am I not throwing the shot discus? And he's like, I think you're going to be really good at this. And I'm like, 
okay. So I, I remember winding it around my head, and I cocked myself right in the forehead with the handle. Ouch. And I remember <laughs> dropping it, and I looked at him. I go, thank you, but I, I'm going to pass. I'm going to go play softball in college. And uh, But with his much persistence altogether, I had about three months of training before college because I did so many multiple sports that, you know, it, it kept me pretty busy. And uh, he he's such a goofball and such a great guy. And he got me to, you know, I, I got to know his son, which was Brian Cooper, a really good friend of mine. And he ended up going to Southern Illinois. And then, so then I went to my, I think it was my sophomore year, I ended up going there just to watch him throw. And well, that's when I first met my husband, J.C. Lambert. Uh, he was throwing at, he, he's a, he was a thrower at SIU. And at the time, I think he was a freshman or sophomore. And, you know, and I met him there. And, and, then, and then I met Coach John and Connie. And then I, you know, and then um, it, it's just, it's crazy how like these type of things. And I was going to go play softball in college and, and not track. I had full rides for both. And I decided to take the partial scholarship to Southern Illinois because, you know, I just had this feeling that, you know, with it's just everyone that I met there was so positive and such a warming experience that, you know, I didn't feel like I needed to go anywhere else. And, you know, it, it's just, it's one of those when you listen to your gut and you listen to how you're feeling and how something makes you feel. That's, but the passion and that's what's going to make you great is when you just listen. And then, you know, and if you can make somebody's day, you know, put a smile, you know, that's one thing I love about being a volunteer coach here at the university is that I get to meet so many new kids and I get to meet so many new people that it just enhances my, who am I doing this for? And it just makes me, you know, want to do better for them. And I want to be better, to set an example. And, you know, and, and it's just amazing just those connections and how I got on this path. And they took softball out of the Olympics. And that's why I went with track because I, you know, I always wanted to be an Olympian. Did I think it was possible? No. Did it become a reality? Yeah. And it's just one of those crazy things that was like, wow, that actually happened. <laughs> So what was it like then when, when you got on the team? Like you say, you know, did you think it would happen? No. And then, oh, wait, that happened. How, how did you I, I, process that? <laughs> like I said, I was very fortunate that my mother taught me that everything is just a moment. Everything is just a moment that everything will pass. And, but it's something that you did. But, you know, and so when I made the Olympic team, it was like, wow, this is incredible. I remember standing in an elevator with Michael Phelps right next to me. And I'm just and you know, I sat down and I was competing against Anita and I remember reaching over and like touching her because I was like, <laughs> I I just touched somebody who does eighty meters. <laughs> you know, I just it's just that a bad like it's just one of those things that you sit there and you take it in, you soak it in, and then you move on. And so, you know, um, I just, that's just how I've always been. It's something that's happened. It's something that's great and wonderful. 
but it's time to move on to a new, it's something that I'll carry forever with, but you know, it's the people who I carry with me every single day that made it important. Thank you so much, Deanna. Check out Deanna on social. She is on Twitter at DeannaPrice32. And on Insta, she is Deanna.Price. And we'll have links to those in the show notes. Oh my gosh, she was lovely. Okay, so before we got started, and this is going to be on audio that goes out to our Patreon patrons, because there's going to be some bonus audio from her for sure. We were talking about weightlifting because Ben saw her uh, post on Instagram and wondered how much weight she was lifting. And she goes, oh, that was a light day. <laughs> then she proceeded to calculate how much weight she lifted and then told us what she lifted on her heavy day. Oh my gosh. So if you want to hear what how much weight Deanna can move, check out our Patreon audio options and we will have that up shortly as one of our audio segments for our bronze level and above patrons. I think it might qualify as a small car. Yeah, maybe. She is moving a lot of weight. Let's just say that. I loved how she kept referring to her coach's different names because she and her coach are married and she would call him Coach Lambert, Coach James Lambert, JC, every once in a while, Coach James. It was so adorable, I thought. Because she doesn't want to say, you know, my husband. Well, I wonder if she, you know, we've talked about this, like with Ken mm-hmm. Rohde, where her dad is her coach. Right. Or Ben talked about this with Chelsea Mammo when her dad was her coach. When you have that personal relationship and athletic professional mm-hmm. relationship, do you think of the person by a different name? If in those two different roles. Right. And we just ran out of time to get to that. But I, I kind of wondered once she started referring to him as Coach James, that was just like, okay, it, because of those conversations we've had in the past, I'm like, okay, that's how she differentiates it. He's Coach James now, and then he's something else when they're not working on the track. Honey bear? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, because he is a teddy bear of a guy. He's adorable. Right? Oh, you know what? So I was watching some stuff on YouTube about hammer throw. I'm putting this in the show notes too. When she talked about breaking her arm, I did see a YouTube video of somebody getting lifted off the ground and slammed down because they just lost control of how fast and hard that ball was moving around. It was, you know, you just don't think that that can happen, but the force at which these athletes move that ball is so incredible that it can lift you up and throw you down well i know it can lift me up and throw me down (laughs) so i can absolutely imagine that this could happen but i mean that's just frightening my arm hurts just thinking about it deanna was so nice next week we will hear about her adventures in rio and you know when we ask people how their time at the olympics was Usually we expect like, oh, the village was great. The village was insane. But what comes out of Deanna's mouth was so shocking that we didn't know how to respond to it. And thankfully, she just kept going with the story. I can guarantee you, you have never heard an Olympic story quite like this. Right. So be sure to tune in next week. All right. Let's move on to our team Olympic fever update. Tofu. Our Team Olympic Fever Update segment is sponsored by PinCollector.com. PinCollector.com is the world's largest online community for Olympic pin collectors. It's a free site. What's really cool about it is that you can catalog and value and show off your collection. And right now, 
The site has about 26,000 pins and it's updated in real time, so you always have the most current information. On the website, you can buy, sell, and trade pins, and the rates for buying and selling are a lot lower than other online platforms and auction sites. Check out pincollector.com if you like collecting Olympic pins. I've got a profile on there, and I'm slowly adding my collection to the platform so you can see what I've got. And I'm going to put up there things I want, too, because I see some other pins on there that are very cool. We've noticed some other listeners have joined, so thank you very much. But you should, too, visit pincollector.com and sign up today. Thanks to Pin Collector, we have our very own Olympic Fever pin, and you can get yours by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash olimfever, or you could give a one-time $20 donation through our PayPal link. Visit olimfever.com and click on support the show for more info. I'm super excited about the pins. They are so cool. We are very excited with what yeah. Pin Collector came up with for us. Exactly. It's very nice. We have our very own media pin, which is a big deal in the collector world. Be one of the first to get it. That's right. That's right. All right. On to Tofu. I know. We have a new addition to Team Olympic Fever, figure skater Megan DeHamel and her husband Bruno Marcotte. Welcome to baby girl Zoe on the 25th. And mom and baby are doing well. And she's been posting pictures. And of course, Zoe is already smiling and looking gorgeous and knowing how to pose for the camera. (laughs) And she'll be able to do an Axel in a few weeks, I think. Well, she was a little early. Okay. So she's very tiny. I'm like, of course she was. Mm -hmm. Megan's a little pocket princess. So of course her baby's a little pocket princess too. Congratulations to both Megan and Bruno. Our speed skater, Aaron Jackson, has qualified for the U.S. Fall World Cup team in the 500 meters, which is also exciting. So Go, Speedy J. That's right. And if you follow our one of our historians, Dr. Michael Warren, on Twitter, you'll see he's been traveling in Europe, and he has been visiting Olympic stadiums everywhere. So he's posted pictures of Amsterdam and Berlin and Barcelona. Follow him on Twitter and share his adventures. It is exciting to see all the, the stadiums when people post them. And I'm surprised visit. Amsterdam is still there. I know. It's impressive that it is still there. Wow. Long time ago. Hey, legacy. The uh, International Federation for Modern Pentathlon had its world championships in biathlon and triathlon this past weekend. And Samantha Ackberg cleaned up. She won gold in everything she competed in. So it was biathlon and triathlon individual competitions and mixed relays. And she competed the mixed relays with Amro Al Jazeera. And the biathlon is a run, swim, run competition. And triathlon is swim, run, and shoot. And we know how she does on laser runs, man. I know. That's her That's her best event in the pentathlon. So this makes sense. Right. So congratulations to Samantha. On our Tokyo 2020 update... You know, the preparation for the marathon is way longer than the marathon itself. (laughs) Just getting this marathon staged is becoming a marathon. Oh, I know. But it is so much fun to follow. It's better than the best soap opera on television. This is the telenovela of the Tokyo 2020 Olympics. Right. So as you recall, when we left off last time. When we left off last time. (laughs) John Coates and the IOC had decided, and probably with World Athletics, decided that Tokyo had to move the marathon to Sapporo and move it to a place that's slightly cooler so we wouldn't have the dangers of the temperatures that Tokyo will likely get next year. That's where we left off. And Tokyo wasn't super happy, so they countered with... 
Well, let's move it to 3 o'clock in the morning to start because it had been moved back to 6. So Tokyo countered with a, how about a 3 a.m. start? And then they went, well, maybe like 5 a.m. So we'll have it start when it's cooler and it'll be done and nobody will keel over from the heat. But John Coates said, no, we've made our decision. And besides, if we started at 3 a.m., you know, we can't film it. You can film it. They do it on Survivor all the time. They film in the dark. You can get those cameras. It's not impossible. But what made me so upset about that is, you know, John Coates keeps going on and on about how athletes hurts athletes first. But no, we can't do it at 3 a.m. because we can't film it then. Right. (laughs) Too bad if the athletes have to go 800 kilometers. We need to worry about filming. So he says no. Oh, and to make up for it, we'll do something for families and underprivileged youth in Tokyo. Which makes no sense because the problem is the cost of moving the marathon and the organizing committee is losing an event that they had kind of counted on. And nobody's talking about who's paying for staging it in Sapporo. Right, which is another problem. The Associated Press reported that it's going to cost about $310 million or 34 billion yen to move the marathon up to Sapporo. Which, that does not surprise me. Yeah, you've got to set it up, stage the event, do all the preparations. This, We already know staging Olympics is not a cheap endeavor, even no. if it's just a single event. And you forget that the marathon finishes in Olympic Stadium. So, I mean, the marathon has been sold as part of a package deal for a session of events. And people probably paid a premium to get to see a medal won and now they won't get to see that medal so you're going to have angry fans who paid for this you're going to have angry spectators who probably went oh we didn't get anything in the ticket lotteries we'll go see the marathon because that's accessible to us right because you can just stand on the sidewalk and watch it it's open to the public and Sapporo wasn't happy about getting it right Sapporo doesn't even want it because they don't have the money to stage this. They don't want to deal with this. And they're not going to be able to sell tickets to the stuff. Because it's so late, they have to think about using... Existing stadiums. Right, existing right, sites. right. They think, oh, well, if we have to do this, we'll probably have to use part of the Hokkaido Marathon course because that's already a course that we know works for marathon. And then it it starts and ends in Odori Park in the center of the city. And the park is not going to have a whole lot of place for spectators to watch the finish. And the IOC had said, well, you know, you can just put the marathon in the Sapporo Dome, except for (laughs) the Sapporo Dome doesn't have a running track. (laughs) Usually the, the marathoners have to finish with like a good lap or two on the track. And then they finish so that everybody in the stadium can watch. But, you know, when you don't have a track in your stadium, you can't do those laps. I I don't know. It's hilarious. And then, you know, what we're not talking about is race walking is all getting folded up into this as well. Right. And those events were moved as well. And they really do need the track. Well, I think the course for that is an outdoor course, but it's not a start at point A and you do a big loop. They set up like their own track so it's laps on this track that could be a kilometer or two kilometers long i don't know how 
this track has been set up, but when I went to see race walking last year, it was, it was like nine laps around a course. Well, one of the things we were talking about before was how is this a surprise? How is the fact that it's going to be hot in Tokyo and this is hard for marathoners a surprise to anybody? And we dealt with this in Los Angeles in 1984. They were talking about the Mm -hmm. heat for the marathon. In Athens, in so many of these Summer Olympics, because we have to stage it in July and August, you know, not like the old days where we could have it in October, this is a perpetual problem and it's going to keep being a problem. So I'm hoping Paris, who had a deadly heat wave this summer, and Los Angeles, who, you know, Los Angeles in July, I don't want to be standing outside. And we said earlier when we read Rome 1960, it was a problem then. Mm -hmm. And they had to run the marathon very late in the day and they were worried about the heat. We have been dealing with this as long as there have been Summer Olympics. John Coates, get your act together. And what what is so funny is that the IOC is always so hands off on like, oh, we'll award it. But like you guys had to be responsible for all the stuff. And now they're at this kind of, you know, they're butting heads in a pretty bad way because the IOC is making demands as they are kind of want to do. But you get those demands and like bids and things where, oh, you have to have these certain things and these certain things. But usually at, after that, they'll just kind of be hanging back and waiting to see how well you're doing. And then they'll panic if something happens. But this is kind of a out of the blue, oh, hey, by the way, go spend a few hundred million dollars. This extra. is like John Coates is the worst mother-in-law in the wedding planning. Like you're about to send the invitations out and she gives you the list of 50 cousins that you didn't know had to be included, (laughs) but your venue doesn't fit that many people. It's like John Coates, stop being the mother-in-law from hell. You gave it the games to Tokyo, let them do their jobs. You didn't care when there was all the controversy over construction. You know, you didn't- care where there was, you know, corruption and bribery, but oh yeah, there's going to be a hot marathon. Let's get involved. Uh, I'll give them a little benefit of the doubt where they say, oh, hey, we are looking out for athlete safety, but you know, like athletes we have read about in this whole saga have said, hey, we've been training for this kind of heat. We know what we're in for. We're not dumb. I I just don't understand how all of a sudden it's it's such a big deal. There could be the issue of the IOC has been pushing, pushing, pushing to get more countries involved Mm -hmm. and to get more smaller IOCs involved. And we know the training for those athletes is not as good. So is this really a concern that you could actually have some athletes die because they're not properly trained for this situation? I don't know. It's not like this is going to be somebody's first marathon. Maybe it will be. No, seriously? You think that it's not like we're taking Eric the Eel and putting him in the pool for the first time. They stopped that. Yeah, I guess. I get maybe that's the concern that there are these two competing IOC goals of letting Japan and, and Tokyo stage the Olympics the way they want, you know, making the host city responsible. But we want to expand the pool of athletes who don't always have the resources they need to be prepared for -hmm. these extreme situations. For race walking, I know some of the countries that are very strong are in Central America. So 
they're Hot closer to the equa- yeah they're closer to the equator so they probably have to deal with some pretty harsh temperatures as well and some really big bugs there is a commission meeting going on right now while we tape and then over the next few days so we will see what comes out of this and we already know John Coates shoots from the hip, so this could right. be fun. I know. This could so be a we'll fun few happens. days. We'll see what happens. Also in Tokyo 2020 news. Oh, there's other news? Yeah, no, they finished a venue. Oh. The Ariake Gymnastics Center is now complete. So it's another venue down. They're getting really close to having all the venues complete. But this is one of the largest wooden structures that they've built according to eventindustrynews.com it's got 2300 cubic meters of wood and it's supposed to make you think of traditional building techniques that predated the use of modern materials and the supporting rods allow the building to look like it's suspended in the air so it's supposed to look like a wooden bowl floating in the bay area i wonder if it smells nice oh i bet it does but it does look beautiful. Also, the Tokyo Organizing Committee announced how the flame is going to get from Athens to Japan. And they've got a special aircraft ready to go. And it's going to say Tokyo 2020 Go on the side of it. Two very special Japanese athletes will be accompanying the flame from Greece to Japan. They would be uh, Tadahiro Nomura and Saori Yoshida Nomura is a gold medalist in men's judo in the 60 kilogram category. And he competed in Atlanta 96, Sydney 2000, and Athens 2004. He was the first judo athlete and first Asian athlete in any sport to win the gold medal at three consecutive games. Wow. And then Yoshida is a wrestler and she won gold medals at Athens 2004, Beijing 2008, and London 2012. And then she got silver at Rio in 2016. Wow, that's a nice collection. Those two will be accompanying the flame to Japan and very big honor for both of them. And their golden aura will protect the flame. Exactly, exactly. So the plane will be all decked out in paint, letting everyone know in the air that it is the torch relay plane. And on that note, I think we'll we'll wrap it up for this week. Let us know what you think of the Tokyo Marathon saga and what's going to happen next. Email us at olimfever at gmail.com or call our voicemail hotline at 53070fever. You can hit us up on Twitter and Insta at olimfever. We'll catch you back here next week for the rest of Deanna's interview. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, keep the flame alive. That's the only thing that I've ever wanted was to be able to say thank you. Do, 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 do.